Last week, we studied the triumphal entry. If the triumphal entry teaches us the lesson, all that is gold does not glitter, then the temple cleansing teaches us the contrasting truth. Not all that glitters is gold. See, that's two different statements. It sounds very similar, right? All that is gold does not glitter. In other words, there's some things that are gold, but they may not look like gold. They don't glitter like gold. And then you get the contrasting side of that. There's some things that glitter like gold, but they're not gold. So the triumphal entry shows us that while Jesus is is marching humbly, riding humbly into Jerusalem, he doesn't look like a king, he doesn't glitter like a king, he doesn't have a crown like a king, he doesn't wear royal robes like a king, he doesn't come in conquering like a king, he doesn't come on on a war horse like a king, but he is very much the king. He does not glitter like gold, but he is very much the redemptive, authentic gold that God has promised long ago. Now we get to the temple, which in contrast to Jesus has every form of majesty and glitters brightly like a crown that sets on the peak of Jerusalem's mount. It has taken 46 years. Can you imagine a building project for 46 years? If you've never been to Israel you never, and you've never seen the temple, I mean, we're talking two-ton blocks of white limestone. I mean, this thing would have been clean, it would have been gleaming, it would have been impressive, it would have been glittering, it would have been amazing. White limestone blocks stacked one on top of another, gold glittering at the top of the temple so that everyone from miles around would be able to see this beautiful and white temple. Glitter, though it did, it was completely ineffective and fruitless. It was useless, essentially. It looked beautiful. It glistened and gleamed in the sun, and everybody would come once a year ascending up to the mountain to worship at this temple, and yet, as we find, it was completely ineffective in what it was called to do. So here's the simple point of the sermon today. Not all that glitters is gold. Matthew 21, 12 through 22, compares the temple and Israel with the fruitless fig fig tree. While the temple and the fig tree bore beautiful green leaves, what we find out is neither of them bore fruit, and therefore both of them were to be destroyed. This is a clear warning to you. This is why it matters to you today. You might be a leafy, religiously devoted moral Christian, and completely fruitless. That's the danger that sits on all of our hearts today. That's the danger that weighs over all of our heads. We might wear the Christian t-shirt. We might come to church. We might listen to nothing but Christian music. We might tithe 50% of our income. We might be really moral people who have all the right political perspectives and still be fruitless victories. How so? How can it be possible that we have all these really good things and not have fruit? Well, let's study and let's find out. Having ridden into Jerusalem as the king, Jesus now comes to the temple mount. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, Jesus' zeal in the temple may seem sudden and reactionary. And yet when you look at his actions from a whole Bible perspective, Jesus' words and works are consistent with what we should expect from the Davidic Messiah. In other words, the cleansing of the temple is anticipated now that is anticipated now that Jesus has come and signaled that he is the royal son of David. We would expect a royal son of David to do what Jesus does in the temple. Now, in order to understand, we're actually going to take this and flip it over. First, Matthew tells us what Jesus does and then tells us what Jesus says. We're actually going to study first what Jesus says and then come back to what Jesus does. And the reason we're going to do that is because Jesus' words help you understand why he does what he does. Why does Jesus 
drive out the money changers? Is he just having a bad day? Why does he pull out the whip and start beating people out of the temple? This doesn't really match with our nice, gingerly, gentle Jesus that we have, right? That this image of Jesus that we have. And yet we see a very angry Jesus here. But why is he so angry? Well, he calls the temple a house of prayer, or at least that's what it should be. He describes what the temple should be. It's a house, it should be a house of prayer, but it has become a den of robbers. Both of those statements come deep from the Old Testament. If you go all the way back to Isaiah 56, God lays out his manifesto of what he expects for the temple to be. He lays out the blueprints of what he wants it to be. In in Isaiah 56, God reveals that he wants his people to keep justice and to do righteousness. Why? Because salvation's on the way. He wants people to live faithfully in light of the coming Savior. And as a result of this salvation, things are going to happen. Amazing things are happening. Foreigners are going to come from far off to this mountain, to this temple. Outcasts, people that, that... wouldn't normally be seen on the temple grounds are going to be brought in. And the temple is going to be a place where all can pray and connect with God. My house shall be called a house of prayer for who? For all people. For prostitutes. Tax collectors. Roman centurions. Venezuelans. Chinese, Russians, Americans, dirty little avillions like you. My house, I called you dirty, I'm sorry. (laughs) My house shall be called a house of prayer for all people, the outcasts and the foreigners. That's what God wanted it to be. God expected it to be a place where broken people would find healing and restoration But when Jesus comes to the temple, you don't see outcasts coming to the temple. You see people, you see the Pharisees keeping people out of the temple. You can't come in. You don't see foreigners coming to seek God and seek reconciliation with God. Instead, what you see is the temple busy with business. People buying and selling, negotiating, haggling over sacrificial animals. They're just exchanging money and being about their own business. Now, Jesus' statement that it has become a den of robbers comes all the way from Jeremiah 7. So if you, again, whenever the New Testament alludes to an Old Testament text, it doesn't want you just to pick out that little phrase that it's using. It expects you to go back and look in context what what it's talking about. So when when a New Testament writer borrows an Old Testament phrase like den of robbers, and he pulls it from Jeremiah 7, 11, he expects you to know what Jeremiah 7 says. So what does Jeremiah 7 say? Well, if you go all the way back to Jeremiah 7, then you find that God laments over his people giving themselves freely to sin. They steal, they murder, they commit adultery, they swear falsely, they worship Baal. And then on Saturday, they come to his temple and make sacrifices. Doesn't sound very unlike what we see today, does it? You see, God has a big problem with his people's religiosity. His problem isn't that sinners come to the temple. That's what the temple is for. The temple is for sinners coming into the temple and finding restoration with God, reconciliation with God. His problem is that they think they can simultaneously hold on to their sin and cling to God. We can worship Baal on Monday and sacrifice to God on Saturday. And all's well. That's the problem. God has never had an issue with sinners coming into his presence. Yes, God is a holy God, cannot allow sinners to come into his presence without atoning sacrifice, but his heart desires for that to be so. He makes a way for sinners to approach him. Constantly, throughout the entire biblical narrative, God is giving ways for sinners to approach him, even in his holiness. So the problem is is not that we have sinners in the temple, The problem is is that we have people who are duplicitous. They love their bells. They love their idols. They love all these other things. And yet with their mouths, they sing that they love God. Whitewashed tombs. That's why why Jesus uses that phrase. Whitewashed tombs. They're, They're beautiful religious people. 
but their hearts are far from God. If you would have gone to the temple back in Jeremiah's days, you would have seen impressive things. Your heart might have been even moved. People singing the Psalms and these deep, passionate singing. You'd heard the, the priest get up and give a, a, a discussion on the law. And man, you'd been like, man, that's a great sermon. Never heard preaching like that. You'd probably weep as you saw the sacrifice being bloodied. And yet all of it's fake. None of it's real. My friends, that's the nature of hypocrisy in its rudimentary form. Loving and clinging to other gods while verbally, religiously claiming devotion to God. That's hypocrisy. Singing to Jesus on Sunday and singing the songs of our own desires and wills on Monday. Worshiping God on Sunday, worshiping Baal on Monday. That's the problem. And so God in Jeremiah 7 says, you're doing all these things outside of my house. You go home to the Baals and then you come to my house and you expect me to listen to your prayers. You expect me to receive your songs. You want me and the other woman, you adulterous people. You're cheating on me. Essentially what God says. So Jeremiah 7, 11, here's what God says. Has this house, this temple, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? My friends, in God's perspective, to be duplicitous like that, to simultaneously cling to idols and our sins and the things that we want and trying to cling to God is glory theft. We're robbers. For people that steal the glory that God is rightly due. And God laments that. We want God's blessings. We ask him to hear our prayers. We externally check the boxes of religiosity. I went to church today. Can't tell you how many times over the last year I've heard the words, I'm a church-going Republican, as if that means something. My friends, those are leaves. It's not fruit. You could have voted red, and guess what? If you don't love your neighbor, you're not bearing fruit. You can serve on the Usher team faithfully, and if you don't love your wife, you have no fruit. My friends, do you see how we do this so naturally? Somebody begins to ask us, how do you know that you're faithful? And we shake our leaves. Look at all these things I do. Yeah, but where's the fruit? Oh, yeah. Ask me about my church attendance. Ask me about my tithe. Come look in my closet and look at all the Christian cheesy t-shirts that I've gotten over the years. <laughs> I don't listen to anybody but Selah and the Gaither boys. When we point to those things, we shake leaves like it means something. Yeah, but tell me what your life is like with your wife. Tell me what you look at secretly on the computer. I see your record of attendance. I see your tithe. I see your faithfulness in coming every Sunday and being an usher or a children's teacher or being faithful to serve in some way. If I were to look at your Google search history, would it say the same story of Faithfulness? Or would it tell a different story? See, this is the danger that's facing us as American Texan Christians. We have lived in the Bible Belt for so long, we've gotten so used to being leafy that we've forgotten what it means to bear fruit. And it's something we as the church need to actively repent of. God wants fruit. Now here's the danger. God is a God that judges fruitless fig trees like temples that don't worship him. We've got a whole Bible filled with that perspective. Jeremiah 7, 12 through 14, right after God calls his own temple a den of robbers, he says, go now to the, my place in Shiloh where I made my name to dwell at first and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. 
Now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen. And when I called you, you did not answer. Therefore, I will do to the house, this temple that is called by my name and in which you trust. Do you hear that? This house that is called by my name that you trust in. Notice he doesn't say that you trust in me. He says you trust in what? The house. And to the place that I gave to your forefathers as I did to Shiloh. Now, if you don't know the biblical story and what he's talking about Shiloh, Shiloh was one of the first places that God allowed his name to dwell as kind of a temple or a house. From what we can understand in First, in first, in, uh, first Samuel chapters 1 through 4, you see that when people pray, they went to this house that's in Shiloh. It's actually called a temple in 1 Samuel 2. And that's where the ark rested. That's where people came to pray. Well, as you read on in 1 Samuel 3 and 1 Samuel 4, you find out that God's people didn't do what they should do. Eli's sons were sleeping with cult prostitutes in front of the doorway to the house. They were stealing fat that deserved for, was deserved for God alone and eating whatever they want and did whatever they want. You know what God did to it? God allowed the Philistines to march right through and demolish the place. You know what he did with the next temple, Solomon's temple, this beautiful temple that was built of cedar and stone and gold and silver and all these things? It stopped serving his purpose. He demolished it. My friends, I've been to Israel. I still see, you can still see the char marks on the white limestone where the Romans toppled it over. And then the first seven chapters of Revelation warns churches, temples like us, that if we don't fulfill God's purpose, he'll remove the candlestick. My friends, we have a God that wants fruit. He wants trees that not only have leaves, but fruit. He wants candles that not just give out light, but heat. No heatless fires here. No lightless sparks here. No fruitless fig trees. That's what God wants. We're not perfect people. I'm not asking you to be. And in fact, it's in the recognition that you're not a perfect person and that you must repent of the sins that makes you a fruitful person. It's this, it's this dumb blindness that makes us think that we have nothing to repent of that actually makes us fruitless. It's this idea that we're good, all's well, that makes us fruitless. My friends, we don't like to hear these things. We like a God who loves his temple and keeps the status quo. We like a God who likes being content with people just showing up and sitting in a chair. But then when you start talking about fruit and bearing fruit and actually being active in discipleship, then it gets a little uncomfortable. And yet, read the scriptures. That's what God wants. Disciples with legs. Followers with hands. Christians with mouths. And not the blind, deaf, and dumb who worship idols. My friends, I speak this in love. I speak this as a warning to myself. They, in Jesus' day, made the temple into one ginormous idol. They trusted in it. They loved it. Look, we're good. We have the temple. They protected it. They defended it. My friends, do you want to know what your idols are? What do you defend the most passionately? What do you defend? What do you fight for? Do you want to know what your idols are? Ask that question. What did the people of Israel defend most passionately? Not the Messiah, not their relationship with God, their temple. They trusted in it. As long as, as, long as it was there, as long as it was standing, they were good with God. Jesus says it's a den of robbers. It's nothing more than a gigantic, massive white limestone idol. That's what Jesus says. My friends, in what ways are we looking at our spiritual checklist 
our morality, our views, and so on, but fail to put absolute full trust in the Messiah, in God. Yes, your life might gleam like white limestones of the temple, but without a real love for God and his people, nothing. Nothing. And Paul says as much, doesn't he? When he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, if I give my body up to be burned but have not love, what am I? My friends, you can do this every single Sunday. You can sign up for volunteering today, and I hope you do, because you should be active. You should be serving. No lazy Christians, please. But at the end of the day, if you look at these things as if this is your proof that you're good with God, all you're doing is building white limestone temples that are going to be toppled over, because that is not actual proof. A person can do all the right things, say the right things, pray the right prayers, give generously and without a sincere affection and awe of God. It's just a temple of void religion. I have been a pastor for going on 13 years now in some form. I've been a youth pastor. I've been a missionary and a, and a associate pastor at another church. And here I am now for the last six years, been a lead pastor. And my friends, I can tell you as a pastor, it's so tempting to wake up Monday and say, well, I served God yesterday. Preached a sermon. I called people to love him. I can, I can not serve my children today, right? I know the feeling. I know what it's like to count my leaves and not my fruit. And it's a warning to me as a pastor, this is the candlestick, and either I let the light and the heat shine, or it'll be taken from me. It's a warning. And it's a warning to you as a church. Are you like the white limestone temple that bears leaves but no fruit? Now, that's all in Jesus' words, okay? Let's look at his actions. According to Jesus' own denouncement, the temple has drifted away from, God, from its God-given purpose, which is to be a place where outcasts and foreigners, okay? Now, outcast is a very broad term here. This means probably people that you wouldn't hang out with or people you might not like to spend time with, people that you might not like to be around or might not share any other view that you have. These outcasts come to the temple. So Jesus is saying it's drifted from that purpose and it's drifted into idolatry. It stops being about the people coming to find God and it becomes about the building. It comes about the look. It's about the aesthetics. So what does Jesus do? Jesus is the king. Now, again, if you've read your Old Testament, you know that every faithful descendant from David's line that loves God does what? cleanses the temple. You see that time and time again, where faithful Judahite kings, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Josh, Jotham, Hezekiah, Josiah, all of them faithful, all of them sons of David, what do they do? First thing in their kingship, clean the temple. Drive out the idolatry. Get rid of the idolatrous priests. Crush the statues, take down the high places, reinstitute the temple to do what it was meant to do. Jesus is another son of David. And he's a faithful, righteous king, more so than Hezekiah, more so than Jehoshaphat. And what does he do? He rides into Jerusalem, claiming himself as king on Sunday, and then cleanses the temple on Monday. The whole biblical perspective, the whole biblical storyline anticipates this moment where Jesus, as the ultimate righteous son of David, puts things in the way they should be. He restores temples. This is amazing. The temple's going to be destroyed. It's going to be destroyed. We're going to read all about this destruction coming in Matthew 24 and 25. The temple's going to be toppled over. Scorched earth kind of 
judgment on the temple. But at least at this moment, for just a little bit, Jesus signals that he is the son of David that has come to make things, bring things back to their God-given intention. He cleanses the temple, gets rid of the idolatry, chases out the den of robbers, and then what happens? The blind and the lame come walking up the temple steps to find healing. The outcast come. He brings Isaiah 56 to bear. My friends, do you want to know when our church fulfills the purpose that God has intended for it? When we have people who drink a little too much whiskey coming on Sunday. When we have people that have pending divorces coming to hear about peace with God. When we have lesbians that know that we can't affirm their sin, but they know that they're loved. That there's no other place on earth that they will feel as much love as here, even knowing we disagree. That's when you know that the church is fulfilling its purpose. We were here for Samaritan women. We are here for Ethiopian eunuchs. You know what's beautiful about the Ethiopian eunuch story, getting sa- about the Ethiopian eunuch getting saved after he visits the temple? Is because in Isaiah 56, that text that we've been mentioning over and over and over, God speaks specifically to eunuchs. These are men who feel like they're dry trees. That's the description that's used. They're barren, they're broken. They feel like their lives are over. And God speaks to eunuchs and says, come to me. I have a room for you in my temple. Eunuchs couldn't come into the temple back in the Old Testament. And yet Isaiah 56 speaks of eunuchs coming and living in the temple. The being blind and lame back in the Old Testament Levitical law meant that you couldn't serve as a priest. You were damaged. You weren't whole. And yet Jesus writes the wrong. And he brings them into his temple. Let's them approach the presence of God. My friends, you may be on a high horse right now. You may be comparing your lives to all these people that you're watching on the news and you're reading about. My friends, get off of your high horse. You were the outcast. You were the foreigner. And you have to come to the temple to get healing, just like everybody else. You... If you know God, if you have been forgiven of your sins, did so in the very same way anybody else can. Sola Christus, only in Jesus. What makes us think we're better? My friends, do you realize that you were the woman caught in adultery? That if you'd have lived back then, you'd have been the one that they wanted to stone. You're the Samaritan woman at the well who's had five husbands. You're the tax collecting Matthew that cares more about the money and the possessions than you do about loyalty to your own people. You're the Peters who think you're so smart and got it all figured out. Jesus has to constantly break you to show you you can't anticipate his plan. You're the Pauls that used to hate this place, right? Nobody would have got you into a church, duped you into coming to a church. Couldn't stand those people. My friends, that's you. And yet God has brought the outcast. Those who were once far off have been brought near by the blood and the love of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to restore things into the way that they should be. Now, naturally, Jesus' implicit condemnation that the temple has become all, uh, idolatrous ruffled a few feathers. Maybe your feathers have been ruffled a little bit today. Imagine Jesus call, comparing. He, he says, den of robbers, the chief priests know the Old Testament. They know exactly what he's referring to. That he's pointing back to Jeremiah 7 saying, it's happening again, chief priests. 
idolatry again. You've got Baal set up again. Naturally, that hacks people off. They're mad. They see the children crying out to the son of David, calling him king. They see him healing the blind and healing the lame. These lame people that have never walked before, up and dancing in the temple. Again, Isaiah 56, over and over and over. And what's their response? He's come, right? No. They become indignant. You know what the word indignant means? This isn't just angry. This is oppositionally angry. This isn't just, we're going to disagree, or we're going to agree to disagree, and I'm a little mad about it. No, this is, we hate you. That's what indignant means. My friends, these chief priests reveal something about themselves and give a warning to us that we need to pay careful attention to. They point to the children. They don't even bother about what Jesus said about the temple, because I think in part they know he's right. But they point to the children. They say, see, they're calling you king. They're calling you son of David. What are you going to do about it? Jesus quotes from Psalm 8, out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Now, again, if we go back to the Old Testament text and read it in context, why does God cause infants, babies, children to sing praise? To silence his enemies. You know what Jesus is implying here? The chief priests love their temple so much they actually have made themselves enemies of God. They have actually made themselves enemies of God. They've cared so much about their moral standard, their pharisaical standards. They care so much about the oral law. They care so much about stoning idolatrous, adulterous women. They care so much about not loving tax collectors. They care so much about not even being seen by those people. They care so much about the white limestones that they've actually reverted into enemies of God. My friends, that is the danger of our glittering temples. Isn't that crazy to think about? That you can love good things, right things, so much that you stop loving God. In seminary, they used to, there was a professor, a really wise, old professor. And he shared with me once, he said, I pray for my students every day. That they will not love theology more than whom theology is about. I'd never thought of that. I thought as long as I was loving theology, I was loving God. No, it's possible to love the books, to love the papers, to love doing all the things theology has, and they even discuss theology and argue about theology, that you can actually stop loving God and stop loving people. Theology is a good thing. It's a right thing to love and be a part of and dabble in, but only in so much as it brings you closer to loving God. That's the danger of the glittering temples in our lives. Do you care so much more about your status quo, about your life, about your church attendance, about your tithing, about your morality, about your political perspectives, that you actually revert and become enemies of God in which all the people that you hate cannot come to him anymore? My friends, I spend a lot of time with lost people. I try to intentionally. I hang out with sinners, and I love it. I have sinners at my fire pit all the time. I go hang out at their house. I eat dinner with their family. Our children play together. You know the one thing that drives the the unbelieving world crazy? You pretending that God doesn't love them. It's funny. I heard it from the mouth of someone who doesn't actually believe in Jesus. And claims he doesn't believe in Jesus. He goes, why do I need to go to a church that listen to all these people tell me what I know is not true? That God hates people like me? Yeah, God doesn't like my sin. He said it. He goes, I I get the point. God doesn't like my sin. God doesn't like the things that I might do. But whenever I go to the church, I feel like that's the end of the story. Like, buddy, I'm sorry that you've gone to church for decades all through your childhood, and no one has told you that, yes, God hates sin, 
And he invites sinners like you to his table. I'm sorry that we have spent so much time putting up statues to the Ten Commandments and arguing and fighting on that battleground instead of being at your table to show you that that's what Jesus would do. Nothing against Ten Commandment statues. I just don't think it's as effective as you think it is. Nothing against statues in courthouses. I think it's great. It's a leaf, though. You want to know what fruit is? Going and eating with people so that they might believe in Jesus. I was in the battleground state where all that happened um, in Stigler, Oklahoma, out front of the courthouse. You can Google it. I'm there in the background picture protesting with hundreds of people at churches, from churches, surrounding the statue that we put up to the Ten Commandments. There were Christians shouting at all these heathens and all these people that had come to take away the beautiful marble statue of our Ten Commandments. And here's where I began to dawn that something's not quite right. Beside me stood a pastor who later in life revealed that he hadn't applied any of those Ten Commandments any more than he stood for them, actually. Secret affairs, secret adulteries, secret hatred, secret idols. He stood for the statue, but never obeyed anything on it. No one ever crossed the street to share the gospel a little bit. Can I buy you a cup of coffee and talk all this thing over? Nobody, nobody did that. My friends, I'm just, I'm just telling us here in the Bible about, and it might cost me my job, sometimes we shake our leaves a little too much over the wrong things. We won. The Ten Commandments statue still stands in front of the courthouse. Guess what? Believers in Stigler are declining. You can see it. Churches are getting emptier and emptier and emptier. People are loving Jesus less and less and less. But we got our statue. My friends, unless you're willing to have this kind of discussion and this kind of real diving in deep, as uncomfortable as it may be, we'll never be the people that God has called us to be. This is what God calls you to. To not just shake leaves. To not just go to the temple, but to actually kick out the bales out of your own home. If you are willing to say that lesbianism is wrong and homosexuality is wrong, I sure hope you don't have bail statues to pornography on your computer. That will do more damage. You're arguing about homosexuality and fighting with homosexuals and not loving homosexuals will be more damaging to the kingdom if you've got those secret porn addictions at home. Homosexuality is a sin. It's not God's intended way. God will never affirm it as right. And we as a church will never affirm it as right. But by God, we are going to love these people so that they can be called out of sin and into marvelous light. Rather than going to war, we're going to live holy, warm lives that are hospitable and consistent with the gospel. That's the problem. That's the problem that we have. We, have all, we say all the right things. We even do all the right things. We wear the, wear the right colors. And yet, when it comes down to it, we don't apply much of it in our own lives. We're angry people. We're bitter. We're not hospitable. We're not kind. We're not... Let's just go through Galatians 6. Are you joyful? Are you loving? Are you patient? Are you kind? Are you peaceful? That's the fruit that God wants. That's the fruit that God wants. My friends, you may not like it. But to be a faithful church that bears fruit, you have to hang out with people you may not like and love them. And desire for them to know Jesus. You don't have to agree with them. You don't have to. When I hang out with my sinful friends, my friends that don't believe in Jesus, there's a lot that we don't agree about. There's a lot that we don't agree about. When they start talking about being thankful to the universe and all that kind of stuff, I, I don't agree with that. 
And I don't speak in that way. And I speak very uncomfortably to him where I'm like, you know, you keep thinking the universe, but I, I would think that if there is a God behind that universe, that you probably should know him and thank him, don't you think? I don't agree, but man, we have a good time anyway. I'm Uncle Justin when their kids see me coming. They love it because their kids know I bring ice cream (laughs) if I hadn't eaten it already. (laughs) My friends, sometimes Christians, they smell like the lost sheep. Would you be surprised if a shepherd walked into our, into our church, a, a real shepherd who keeps goats and sheep and cattle? Would you be surprised and think he had done something wrong if he smelt like those goats and sheep and cattle? No, it's consistent. He's a shepherd. My friends, do you smell like lost sheep? Because we know that that's who we're called to. We're to... Be for the outcast. Do you smell like outcast? I hope so. I've got five minutes to, ex- to explain the, figless, the fruitless fig tree. Man, maybe after this summer, I'll get the whole sermon time thing down. Jesus returns to the city. He's hungry. He sees a fig tree, by the way. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to summarize as much as possible from this. He sees a fig tree. It's got leaves on it. Just so you know about fig trees, the leaves and the fruit come together. It's not like an apple tree that has leaves without fruit, and then the fruit comes later. No, fig trees are different. When the leaf is there, the fruit should be there. So the fig tree is advertising. I have fruit. That's why Jesus walks over to it. He's hungry. He sees a fig tree with leaves. Oh, fig trees with leaves mean Fruit. He walks over and what does he find? Nothing but leaves. And so what does he do? He curses it. May no fruit ever come from you again. Now in Matthew's gospel, it happens immediately. In Mark's gospel, it happens the very next day, but it withers. And in Mark's gospel, in Luke's gospel, he adds, to the root. Where does that come from? This is more than Jesus just taking out all of his, his kept-up anger on a fig tree, right? He's not kicking the dog here, kicking the tree. He's not doing any of that. There's an enacted parable happening. The, the, the fig tree represents Israel and the temple. You go back to Hosea 9, for example. Hosea 9, 10 through 17. God, uh, Jesus, uh, God says that Israel's forefathers were compared with the first fruit on the fig tree. He calls Israel the fig tree. But then, later, they get into this idolatry, into this self-centeredness, and their root is dried up, literally withered. The root of this fig tree becomes withered. And then what does God say? They shall bear no fruit. So what Jesus is doing here is just enacting Hosea 9, showing what's to come to the temple and to Jerusalem. Like the fig... The temple had its leaves, it advertised fruit, but upon closer inspection by God himself, it had nothing but leaves. It looked good. It looked like it should, but it didn't produce what it should. Practically, I think, for us, this means that our Faith has to go beyond mere words, mere stances, and mere religious acts. We have to be people that are real, sincere people. We have to be people that are real. My friends, I've got, let me just anticipate this. I got this question actively last year. Why does he speak so down to us, but never speaks down to everybody else out there? Can I answer that question in this? Are you ready for this? You know better. You're not blind. They are. I pity them. I'm sad for them. But they do only what they should do. Blind people grasp in the dark, bump into things, break things, riot, all those things. Kill babies. Blind people do that. But you're seeing people You can see. Your eyes have been opened. Your ears have been opened. 
judgment begins, okay, according to 1 Peter, in the house of God. The fire starts here, and then it goes out. That's why I don't speak so much about what's going on out there. Because what's going on out there has been going on since Genesis 3. It doesn't surprise me, honestly. What surprises me is Christians who act like blind people. Christians who have idols. That's surprising. Christians who don't have love. Christians who aren't patient and peaceful and kind and gentle and merciful and loving. That's surprising. It's like finding a leafy fig tree without fruit. Surprising. Jesus causes it to wither. My friends, there may be some of us in danger right now of withering in our faith. How you handle this sermon and how you respond may very well reveal your roots and how you think about the gospel soil into which you have been planted. Leaves does not make a fruitful fig tree any more than driving a Cadillac and having a big house makes me a rich person. In fact, in most cases, then not having a Cadillac and a big house may actually be a sign of some secret unseen debt. It's, it's, it's an irony when I, when I hear people talk about, well, yeah, I, I'm, I'm faithful to do this, or I do this, and I do this, and then months later, we're in the counseling room talking about their addictions, their habits, their broken marriages. My friends, something's wrong when we care more about the leaves and less about the fruit. Now, all that's the sad and depressing part. Jesus essentially said that the temple is going to be destroyed. It's going to wither, just like that fig tree. He's, he's going to denounce it in Matthew chapter 24. He's going to outright say it's going to be completely destroyed. He says, not one stone will stand up on another. He says that in Matthew 24. So here's the question. If God hears our prayers because of the temple, which was true, actually, before Jesus came, 2 Chronicles 6.21, Solomon prays, when your people pray toward the temple, hear them. Okay, Even in exile, when the temple was destroyed, people still prayed toward Jerusalem, just like Muslims pray toward Mecca. The Jews still prayed toward Jerusalem because it was by facing toward the temple that God would hear their prayers when they prayed toward the temple. What happens when the temple's destroyed? What happens when the fig tree gets withered? Jesus says this, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. Do you hear what Jesus is saying here? Your prayers will still be heard if there's no temple. Now, in context, that's beautiful because this passage has been so often misrepresented by malpracticing teachers to mean you'll get whatever you want if you ask for it. Jesus isn't promising prosperity. He's promising access. Way better. Pray for the car all you want. You may or may not get it. But guess what? You will forever have a God who hears your prayers. Don't cheapen, cheapen it with this prosperity idea. You have access to God in heaven with no temple. You want to know why? Because Jesus died, the temple curtain went in two, and he became the place in which we meet God. We pray. We have faith. And God hears why? Because Jesus bled. His temple was destroyed. He died. Three days later, he rebuilt it. And now for us stands a great high priest who makes sure even the smallest whispers, the unheard spoken thoughts of prayers, reaches the ears of God. So we have here a beautiful message. On the one side, don't be the fruitless fig tree. 
bear fruit. Love. Be gentle, be patient, be kind. Be like Jesus. Bear the fruit that God desires. And then on the other hand, guess what? You can do so because you have access to God who hears your prayers. My friends, that is the good news. In Jesus, we can approach God. And because we can approach God, people who approach God and get nearer and nearer and nearer to him, guess what? They blossom, they bloom, and they bear fruit. I guess it would be bloom, blossom, and then bear fruit. My prayer for you as a church, that, is, that you do not get content with what happens in one hour on a Sunday. I, I have met many people who want everything in their spiritual life to happen in an hour and a half. You can't. I'm praying for you to be fruitful on Sunday afternoon. When you're alone with your computer and your phone, for you to be fruitful when you're in bed with your spouse, for you to be fruitful, when you're hanging out with the neighbor that you can't stand, to be fruitful, when you post on Facebook, to be fruitful, when you text that alienated child, to be fruitful. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then on Sunday, we bring our fruits as an offering. Let's pray. Father God, as hard as this message has been, it is a text that demands harshness because Jesus is the one who took up whip and threw over tables and drove out people who were exchanging money and merchants, Father. It's not a gentle, it's not a gentle, soft version of Jesus. And yet, Father, we also see Jesus being gentle to the blind and the lame as they come. Father, I pray, Lord, that you will turn over the tables of our church, that you'll turn over the tables in our lives, that you'll drive out the signs of idolatry, the symbols of things that we hold on to, whether it be morality. God, you have called us to be moral people, but you haven't called us to morality. You've called us to you. God, that all the things that we stand for, Lord, I pray that we will equally bear fruit being loving and kind and hospitable, welcoming to sinners so that those who are far off, so that outcasts may come near. Convict us, Father. I pray against any self-righteous filters. If someone feels beaten up, Father, I pray for your gentle hand to help them feel your gentle conviction. Father, this isn't a time for us to navel gaze and think about how we're offended. This is a time for us to offer up our hands and to say, Lord, take this imperfect person like myself. Cause this barren fruit tree to bear fruit. But God, I just pray that you will bust through the filters of whatever anyone has heard, that they'll honestly assess where they stand. And if they bear no fruit, I pray that they will repent and bear the fruit to which you have called them. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.